0: Having a physical fight or abusing someone, using illegal or non-prescription drugs, saying something to someone that's not true, getting back at someone for something they did, and consuming enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk. So uh, there was no statistical difference between uh, those who, who claimed to follow Christ and those who uh, said they did not follow Christ uh, among those ten areas of their lives. Uh, the only activity that was less common among Christians was uh, actually recycling, uh, which was 68% uh, to uh, 79%. So, so how do we make sense of statistics like this? Uh, that that in this poll in this study it shows that that Christians act and behave the same way as as non-Christians. How do we how do we interpret that data? Because should that be the case? Uh, should there should there be a difference between uh, the way that Christians conduct themselves and the way the world conducts themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So so how do we make sense of this? Well. Uh, Jesus himself said in, in Matthew 7 that, there, uh, that not everybody who, who claims to follow him or claims to know him truly does. Matthew 7.23, uh, this morning our scripture reading was from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, that's why the world looks at the church, that's why the world looks at Christians and and sees hypocrisy. Uh, because there have been many who have taken on the name of Christ in vain. Uh, they have they have claimed to follow Him when they they really don't know Him or worship Him in spirit and in truth. Uh, and and when the world sees people who claim to be Christians, uh, who who claim to be morally upright and following Jesus, uh, and when they they see those people living in the same way as the world, they they interpret that as hypocrisy because it is. Right? And that's, that's one of the, the, the biggest reasons people don't want to be involved or participate in church or, or hear about Jesus, because they say that church is full of hypocrites, full of people who, who say one thing and then and do another. And on the one hand, when they say that, we have to agree with them. So, you know, that, that's a reality. Uh, and that, that breaks our hearts to know that some people have taken on the name of Christ and they're misrepresenting him to the world. That should break our hearts. We should be in a hearty agreement with those people when they when they raise that objection, say, Amen. Uh, we don't want that. And that's that's a false representation of who Christ is and who Christians are to be. Uh, and and we need to just, you know, graciously point out, but there there are many who claim Christ, but they do not truly know him. And those nominal Christians in name only grossly misrepresent him. And, and the Apostle Paul knew that was going to be uh, true. He knew that there would be some who would misrepresent Christ because Jesus foretold it. And so when we come to, to Colossians 4 this morning, and, and Paul is winding down his letter and giving these last instructions to the Colossian church, he's going to, uh, to be addressing in this paragraph, uh, we started last week in, in Colossians 4, verses 2-6. through 6. These five verses, Paul's going to be talking about how the, how the church is to conduct themselves in their relationships with the world. Uh, how do we conduct ourselves in relating to those who are outside of the church? And, and he's going to, uh, to call the, the Christians at Colossae, uh, to do two things. There's two big ideas in this paragraph. We, saw, we looked at the first one last week, uh, and that was to to continue steadfastly in prayer, to be devoted to prayer. And in that context, as we looked at it, he's he's calling them to uh, to be steadfast in prayer, and then also to be praying for evangelistic opportunities, to pray that the gospel would go forth, and that when those doors opened for the gospel, that uh, that Paul would would speak the truth clearly and boldly, and and then this next statement that we'll look at this morning, if you, if you have your Bibles there, uh, we'll read verses 2 through 6, but this morning we're just going to look at verses 5 and 6. Begin reading with me there in verse 2. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he's going to give these, these instructions concerning how they are to to interact with outsiders, as we see in this in this verse today. And, and similar to what we saw last week, there's just one big idea in what we're going to talk about. There's one command issued, uh, one imperative in verses 5 and 6, and that's for them to walk in wisdom towards those who are outsiders. Uh, and then, uh, after that, Paul is going to explain what that looks like. What does it look like to, to walk in, in wisdom? And he's going to emphasize two specific ways uh, on how the Colossians can do that. But let's look first uh, at the big idea. Now, if you have your, your outlines, you can follow along. Uh, the command would be to, to walk in wisdom in your relationship with those outside the church. Uh, and uh, this this command to to walk is uh, the idea of uh, of how we conduct ourselves, how we are to to live and interact with the world around us in our everyday life. Uh, and Paul narrows his discussion to how we are to live in relationship to to those who are outside of the church. And and to a Jew in the first century, everybody who was not a Jew was in outsider. And to a certain extent, as Christians, everyone who is not a Christian is uh, an outsider, no, just to a, in a limited extent. Of, uh, they, they, they come from a, a different perspective and a different uh, background, and uh, they're not going to see and view things as we are in the house of God. And we are to conduct ourselves with wisdom, but, but what does that mean? Right? You can say that, you know, conduct yourself wisely, but what does that truly look like? And, uh, and it's amazing when we, when we zoom out and take a bird's eye view of Colossians, of seeing uh, the type of uh, emphasis that Paul places on wisdom in this letter. If you, if you, if you turn back with me to, to the, the beginning of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 9. Paul's going to pray for the Colossians to be filled with wisdom. Says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That was that was Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Uh, And then if you go to the end of chapter 28, or chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, speaking of Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature. In Christ, So Paul's saying the focus of his ministry was to, to teach and admonish everybody in, in wisdom. Right? And then Paul describes his ministry that way, and then in Colossians 3, he's going to call the Colossians to do exactly what he was doing. Look at verse 16 in Colossians 3. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what Paul, Paul's ministry consisted of now, he says, Hey, Colossians, your ministry should consist of that very same practice, of teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, if you look at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, that the, the false teaching, the legalism that was present in the Colossian church, that, which is the reason that Paul is writing this letter, Now, the the legalism of the false teachers had an appearance of wisdom, but in and of itself, it was totally empty and void of any power to transform the human heart. You can give people rules, and parents, you know that. As you give kids rules, does that transform their desires and their hearts? No, it helps them keep it within the, the, the boundaries, so to speak, but do they break those boundaries? Yeah, like, how frequently? All the time. Uh, so that's what Paul is saying to the Colossians. All of the, the, these man-made rules that you have established have no, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, wisdom has a, a, has a huge import here in uh, this letter to the Colossians. And, and we need to understand all of the other verses on wisdom in light of one verse in the very center of the book. And that's chapter 2, verse 3. Where he says, In whom... Speaking of Christ, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if all wisdom and all knowledge are hidden in Christ, if we want wisdom, who should we turn to? Jesus. We, we, we look to him, we pray to him, asking uh, for him to lead us, to guide us. We, we study his word, trying to understand his character, his conduct. Uh, if we want wisdom, we look to Christ. All wisdom is hidden in him. But then again, what is, what is wisdom? What do we mean when we say wisdom and, and to walk in wisdom? Well, wisdom can simply be explained. It's the, the skill of being able to form and execute the correct plan to gain the desired results. So it's basically saying, what do I need to do in this situation? Uh, how do I accomplish it? And then asking, is that the best way to accomplish it? If this is my goal, what's the best way for me to get there? That's what wisdom is. Uh, and... And you can be wise in doing evil. Right? That's what the world is. Right? They're, they're very good and skilled at doing evil. They, they desire sin, say, hey, that's my goal. What's the best way for me to sin and to achieve sin? Uh, the world around us is great at that. They are wise in evil, but we are called uh, to a different kind of wisdom, a godly wisdom. In Proverbs, what's the beginning of wisdom? Talk to me. Yeah, the fear of the Lord. Uh, and uh, as Christians, uh, our biblical wisdom is very different. Biblical wisdom means that our end goal is always to glorify Christ. Not, not to get what we want, to put to, but to glorify our great God and Savior. Uh, and then, uh, if that's my goal, then how, do I, how does God want me to carry that out in this situation? That's what biblical wisdom calls for and looks like. Uh, and so we are called to, to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside of the church. But again, let's also talk specifics. What does that look like? What does it mean to, to walk in wisdom? And what, is, what does the Bible teach us in how to interact with those who are unbelievers around us? Well, this is, this is not an exhaustive list, uh, but here's here's some six that I came up with. Number one, and this is, would be an all-encompassing, is we are called to be above reproach. Uh, we are called to to not have anything that an unbeliever can can grab a hold of and pull us down with, uh, and at the same time profane the name of Christ. This is uh, expressly stated that, that elders and deacons, uh, you can see this in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, they are called to be the the, the biggest qualification of, of a leader within the church, of a pastor, of an elder, is that they are above reproach. Because you don't want somebody leading in uh, a church who the world looks at and says, hey, why is that guy up there leading these people? Now look at all of this sin in his life. Why would we want to listen to him? Now, we don't want uh, leaders to be, uh, I guess, to be able to be under attack and for the world to have legitimate concerns about a Christian leader. So leaders uh, are called to be above reproach. And then every believer, you look at Titus 2, verses 1 through 10, where uh, Paul uh, goes and lists out, hey, so older older men, older women, younger women, uh, younger men, bond servants. He lists through all of these categories and he's going to call them to a certain conduct. And then with each uh, conduct, each command that he gives them, there's going to be a gospel motivation so that the name of Christ is not profane, so that the doctrine of God is a it's, it's made attractive to the world. That's, why, that's what holy living does. And first and foremost, we are called to be above reproach in the eyes of the world. Secondly, we are called to be evangelistic. Now, that Even though you know, we want to live a holy life and then we want to bring the gospel to them. We see that in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We, we see that in uh, the end of the passage that we had in our scripture reading today. That we are to be salt and light. Right? We are to, to do our good deeds and good works before men so that who gets the glory? God, not, not we ourselves, but in everything that we do, we want to be pointing everyone around us to, to see God, to see our Creator, to see Him in His holiness and grandness. That's what we want to do. We need to be above reproach, evangelistic. Uh, third, we need to be prayerful. And you can just look back to the beginning of Colossians 4 that we already read this morning, where where Paul is saying, be devoted to prayer, and uh, especially evangelistic prayer. Pray for for doors for the gospel to be opened. Uh, And then also Paul repeats that same idea in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Listen, he says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and of all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We are called to be in prayer for those around us in the world, which is, which is deeply humbling, right? You're like, I have enough to pray for just with, with those people in the church or with the needs of my family. Uh, but we need to be in prayer for those around us, especially for our leaders. We also see that we are called to be loving uh, if you want to be convicted and, and pierced to your heart, just go and sit down this, this afternoon and just read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and there's so much in there that should, should pierce us deeply, and I don't think there's a section uh, more deeply piercing than this it's in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, where Jesus says that we are called to be loving towards those in the world. Listen, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, how should we, how should we interact with those who persecute us in the world, those who hate us? What should we be doing? Praying for them. Loving them. That is how we are called to respond. Respond. Fifthly, we are also, so in those first four of being above reproach, uh, being evangelistic, being prayerful, and being loving, those are all uh, positive things of what we should be seeking. But also, these last two uh, are are where the the balance comes in. Number five would be that we are to guard against worldly thinking. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul's going to issue this stern warning. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul's warning there says, hey, there are thoughts and ideas out in the world that want to to capture you and take you captive to them. And he's saying, no, we serve Christ, uh, and Christ only. Don't be captured by those ideas of the world. We also see 2 Corinthians 10.5, not only are we are not to be captured by the ideas of the world, but we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought that we have, we, we take it, we capture it, we bring it to Christ and say, what do you think of this? What should I do with this thought? Should I believe it? Should I not believe it? What do you want me to do with this idea, Jesus? And then turn with me to to Ephesians chapter 5. So a passage that's... That's parallel to and and similar to what what Paul writes here in Colossians 3. Uh, And and it has the same idea of guarding against worldly thinking. Look at me, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time... You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, he He calls us to to not be taken captive by by worldly I, ideas and worldly thoughts, and then. The sixth way that we are to interact with the world, we also see here in Ephesians 5, in these next two verses, and that's that we are called to confront injustice in the world. We don't just see injustice and then sit idly by. Look at, look at what Paul says. Verse 11, he says, "...take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do." In secret, we are called to to expose injustice, to speak out against it, because again, that's something that the world will see uh, as a a, le- a certain level of hypocrisy. If here we are uh, wanting to be morally upright and yet we don't speak out against injustices in the world, not that we are to only be about that, but these these six things are, are called to to be held in tension in our lives and and. Uh, Interact and guide us as we interact with the world around us. Uh, and uh, the biggest and foremost of these is, is looking to be above reproach. Uh, and, and that needs to be our overall goal, and the others are, are ways that we can do that. And, and a great example of, of what it looks like to be above reproach is actually uh, comes from a man who, who died this past week, uh, Billy Grant. Billy Graham, whether you, you agree with his ministry methods or, or not, uh, he had an amazing legacy because for he had a ministry that spanned uh, close to six decades. Right, That's a long time. It's a long time uh, to be in ministry. And yet, throughout that time, there was no hint of scandal throughout the course of his ministry. Uh, and that was in large part because he wanted to make sure uh, that his ministry was above, and be, above reproach and had no appearance of evil. So in, in 1948, at the very beginning of his ministry, he uh, and his ministry partners, his ministry team, were in Modesto. Uh, and They were in the middle of some meetings, and they were talking about what some temptations of evangelists and evangelism uh, faced that day uh, at that time. Uh, and they came up with, with principles that would guide the integrity of their ministry. Uh, and they called it later on the the Modesto Manifesto. Uh, and, and here's what Billy Graham writes uh, of that in his own autobiography. He says, the first point on our combined list was money. Since nearly all evangelists at that time, including us, were supported by love offerings taken at the meetings. The temptation to wring as much money as possible out of an audience, often with strong emotional appeals, was too great for some evangelists. In addition, there was little or no accountability for finances. It was a system that was easy to abuse and and led to the charge that evangelists were in it only for the money. I had been drawing a salary from uh, YFC, which is Youth for Christ, and turning all offerings from YFC meetings over to YFC committees, but now independent efforts in citywide campaigns required separate finances. In Modesto, we determined to do all we could to avoid financial abuses and to downplay the offering and depend as much as possible on money raised by a local committee in advance. He says, hey, my ministry is not going to, to be susceptible to financial fraud or financial abuse. And to make sure that we can't even be accused of that, they set those things in order. The second item that they, that they discussed and came to a conviction about was uh, the danger of sexual immorality. He says, We all knew of evangelists who had fallen into immorality while separated from their families by travel, and we pledged among ourselves to avoid any situation that would have even the appearance of compromise or suspicion. From that day on, I did not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than my wife. We determined that the Apostle Paul's mandate to the young Pastor Timothy would be ours as well. Flee youthful lust. 2 Timothy 2.22 uh, it's amazing, there's a, a big stir right now about uh, what's known as the the Pence rule. A right? uh, Vice President Pence saying he's not going to, to meet uh, alone with women just for the sake of being above approach. Well, well, long before that was the Pence rule, that was the Billy Graham rule. That was his practice because he didn't want to even be accused or be able to be accused of any impropriety with a woman. Uh, he says their third concern was the tendency of many evangelists to carry on their work apart from the local church, or even to criticize local pastors and churches openly and scathingly. He says, hey, we're not going to, to, as a parachurch ministry, it's easy for, uh, for parachurch uh, organizations to criticize the local church and say, well, the church isn't doing this. And he says, hey, we're not going to do that. We're going to work in support with the local church. And then the fourth issue uh, was publicity. At that time, it was easy uh, when you'd have these big meetings to, to puff up the numbers a little bit. Uh You wanted to get noticed in the newspapers, and uh, you would, you could be dishonest about how many people were there and he said, "Hey, you know what uh, I never want to to puff up the numbers and if if we have a disagreement uh, with a newspaper on how those numbers are reported we we won't uh, we won't make a big deal of it okay? we We're going to to make sure uh, that it's, it's not all about the numbers it's not all about money, uh, and those things are going to be be secondary because Billy Graham and his ministry sought to be above reproach in everything that they did." Uh, and you know what? They were successful. In it. Uh, again, having six decades of ministry without a hint of scandal, I would say that, uh, that that's good. And you notice uh, with the passing of Billy Graham, almost nobody had anything bad to, to say about him. Uh, everybody was saying he was a man of, of integrity and uh, they, were, they were praising him as, as a man of God. And that's what we are called to strive for here. Of what would people say about us in the community? What would people say about us at our funeral? Are we men and women of integrity? Uh, do we bear the name of Christ uh, well, or do we do we profane His name? Have we taken it in vain? You know, as the third commandment in the Old Testament, oftentimes we think of it just as don't speak the name of God lightly. And I think it's intending that. But how much more when we when we call ourselves Christians, who name, whose name do we bear? Christ. As soon as you claim to be a Christian, it's like you have Christ's name stamped on your forehead. And everywhere that you go, everywhere that, every time the world sees you, who are they seeing? Who are they, they believing that they're interacting with? Someone who is a follower of Christ. So we need to to take that seriously and not take his name in vain. And we all need to strive for that here. But as, we, as we're walking in wisdom toward outsiders, there's, there's two two extremes that we need to avoid. It's easy for us to swing from one or the other. Well, number one it would be, that one extreme would be the, the monastic extreme uh, of we, we run and hide and separate ourselves. We become monks uh, and we don't interact with the world, right? Uh, we just want to go and live a holy life uh, between us and the Lord. And you're like, hey, that, that sounds admirable, but we're not able to fulfill the Great Commission in that. Uh, it, it's impossible to fulfill the Great Commission when you're alone and by yourself. So one extreme is the monastic extreme, where we go and isolate ourselves, and the other extreme would be the, the nominal extreme, which is what I mentioned earlier, where people just uh, become uh, Christians in name only, uh, that they are no different from the world. And you are a Christian because that's the, the name that you bear, but you, have, you act and believe everything that the world... Uh, Preachers. Uh, and there, there's no difference. And what we are called to do is walk in, in wisdom. We need to be above reproach, but also evangelistic. We need to be praying for them and loving toward them, even when they are persecuting us. And at the same time, we need to be on guard against the world's ideas. Uh, and we need to speak out against the injustices of our time. That's what we are called to do. That's how we will be salt and light in this world around us. Uh, and each of us may, may be tempted to swing to a, one of those extremes, or at different times and in different ways. Uh, and which one are you? Which one do you find yourself most likely to do? To, to isolate yourself? Uh, and if you look around and you have absolutely no friends outside of the church, or you don't know anybody in your neighborhood or at your workplace, you may be more prone to, to swinging to that monastic extreme of, of isolation. Uh, and another way... Uh, Others of you might be more prone to swinging into uh, the world's way of thinking, and you just are a Christian in name only, but not truly following Christ, of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him each and every day. Uh, And and we need to to avoid both of those extremes and be anchored by the word of God. Rather than a pendulum swinging back and forth, we want to be a, a plumb line. Uh, And again, anchored by the word so that we know how to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside of the church. Because we all have to do it in some way, right? We we have jobs and we have neighborhoods that we go to. We're going to have some people in our lives who are unbelievers and we need to know how we need to interact with them. So Paul issues this this big idea, this overarching command of walk in wisdom. And then he's going to give two Ways of emphasis on this. And it's not exhaustive of this is the only way that you interact with unbelievers. But uh, the first way he's going to give is at the end of verse 5. So if you turn back over to to Colossians. See at the end of verse 5, he says, Making the best use of the time. Uh, And and that phrase, making the best use, uh, is actually just one word in the Greek. Uh, and it's the idea of being being in the market and buying up something intensively. So you're in the marketplace, and what, when you see a good deal, what do you do? I gotta get it. I gotta act quickly. Uh, and and what he is saying here is that we need to to take advantage of the opportunities that we get. That when you see opportunities for evangelism. We're, t- we're supposed to buy it up. We're supposed to act quickly, act like it's on sale, and there's a limited number of those. Uh, well, you buy it up quickly and intensively. I think of um, stockbrokers on, uh, on, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You guys all see them uh, tr- trading like crazy, and when, so- when something is a hot commodity, everybody wants to do what? Buy, buy, buy. Uh, that's what we need to do. We-, we need to be buying up every opportunity we can to share the gospel with others. That's, that's what the, the picture that Paul is, is painting here. Uh, and, and again, going back to what we looked at last week, we need to be praying for those opportunities uh, and praying that when those opportunities arise, we're praying for open doors. When those doors open, we want to ask the Lord to give us uh, the ability to communicate the gospel clearly. And, and if the Apostle Paul needed prayer for that, when, you know, in verse 4 when he says, Pray that I would speak as I ought to speak, that I may make it clear... If, if Paul needed to be praying that, how much more do we? Right? Say, Lord, give me the words to uh, to communicate the gospel clearly uh, at that time. And then we need to seize those opportunities with gusto, uh, with, with with excitement, seeing, man, this could be my only opportunity to share the gospel. And sometimes we have to create those opportunities. Uh, we say, hey, I don't have uh, as many opportunities as I would like. I don't have as many uh, un- unbelieving friends or neighbors. I need to, to go and reach them. But, Think through how can you be intentional in your everyday life uh, to reach others with the gospel. I love what one of my seminary professors said. He said, you know, for years and years he was going to this barber, uh, and over time he was sharing the gospel with his barber, and he said, man, I had a bad haircut for ten years, uh, but, but now the barber goes to my church. Uh, and sometimes we need to do that. Uh, frequent uh, the same restaurants, frequent the same barbers. Go and develop relationships with, uh, with people in your everyday life, and over time be, begin to share the gospel with them. Pray for our doors to be opened, uh, and then seize those opportunities. And as we spoke about last week. It's amazing. When you begin to pray for open doors, what happens? Doors begin to open uh, and then suddenly you have opportunities and you're like, wow, this person just asked me this. Uh, and how do I answer? How do I bring this conversation to, to spiritual things? How do I bring Jesus into this uh, and begin to speak clearly the gospel? That's what we need to begin to pray for and then to begin to, to act upon. Uh, and it's also interesting, in this, in this verse, when, when he says, make the best use of the time, in Greek there, there's two words for time. Uh, one word refers to, to a calendar, and it's, and it's used for specific time. Okay? Uh, and then there's a the second word that refers to time by its significance, and it refers to a season of time. Uh, and that's the word that's used here. So to, to redeem the time, to make the best use of this time, he's talking about this, this time period in which we are, uh, are waiting for Christ to return. And in between his first and second comings, we have a season in which the church is called to be the witness of Christ on the earth. We are called to carry the gospel forward, and that's a limited period of time. We don't know how long that time is, so there's an urgency to it, but that's what he is saying here. Make the best use of this time, this season, uh, when Christ we are waiting for Christ to return. Now one pastor said, this present evil season of time between the advent of Christ must be bought up and redeemed by the believer so as to serve Christ. The purposes of God. That's what we that's what we see here is that we are to to buy up every opportunity that we can to proclaim the gospel and bring glory to God. Uh, quoting again from Ephesians 5, that chapter that we were just in, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. You ever notice how fast time goes? Uh Goes by. It's just like, man, it's uh, it's almost like life is a vapor, right? James says that. Uh, or or Moses in Psalm 90 says, "Lord, teach us to number our days." Even if if life is 90 years old, it's it's but a vapor. It goes by so fast. That's where Moses' prayer: "Lord, teach us to to number our days, to make each one count, to to know how many days we have left, and how we can use our time uh, to the fullest." Galatians 6:10. Paul also writes: "So then, we have." opportunity, that same idea of time, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That idea of of time. And then John 9, 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. We have a, a limited amount of time to share the gospel with others While we are here on the earth. One evangelist has said, what's what's the one thing you can't do in heaven? Share the gospel with others. And we're going to be singing the gospel. We're going to be praising God for the gospel. But you don't need to share the gospel with anybody else in heaven because everyone who's there has believed it and embraced it. So what we are called to do here on this earth during this time is to carry the message forward to others. And we are limited in that time. We don't know when Jesus will return which puts an, an urgency on our proclamation. The author of Hebrews says, what day is the day of salvation? Not yesterday, not tomorrow, but today. Uh, and as long as it's still called today, there's hope, but there will be a time when there is no longer a, a today because we have escaped time and are in heaven with the Lord. Uh, there was always an urgency to what Paul preached and proclaimed. Listen to Acts 17.30 uh, of him saying, hey, now that... Now that Christ has gone, as we wait for his return, we are called to to bring everybody to repentance and faith. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all. By raising him from the dead. How do we know that Jesus is God's appointed man, God's appointed judge to judge the earth? Because God raised him from the dead. We are to make the best use of our time to buy up every opportunity for evangelism as if they were a hot commodity because they are a hot commodity. We don't know how many of those opportunities we will have left. We don't know how long we will live. We don't know how long those around us will live. We don't know when Christ will return. There is an urgency to our gospel proclamation. No. So we must look for ways to step out into our neighborhoods, into our community, into the city of Meridian. How can, how can you make an impact upon your neighbors and reach them for Christ? And sharing the gospel with Him. That's what it looks like to make the best use of our time. And that's what we are called to do here. That's the first way we can walk in wisdom. And the second, uh, Paul gives in verse 6. He says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's what we see, that we need to, to walk in wisdom by seasoning your speech with grace. Uh, and the idea that, uh, of our speech being gracious, meaning that it's, it, it has a winning quality to it, or an attractiveness that, that invites a, a favorable reaction, uh, and, and Paul is referring to, to those occasions when we can share the gospel, but also just in all of our interactions with uh, those who don't follow Christ, that we should speak in a way that is gracious. Have you guys ever uh, seen or heard uh, of an evangelist named Ray Comfort? Uh, so he, he does uh, these... these uh, just. Street evangelism, evangelism, and he uses what his evangelism technique, he calls it the way of the master. He points people to the Ten Commandments to show them that they've broken God's law and stand as a sinner before God and face his judgment. And it's it's amazing what he does. And he has this really cool Australian accent. I won't try and mimic it here, uh, because I'll just sound really silly. But, but it's amazing what he says to people, because he'll run through this list of questions of uh, so, you know, are you uh, have you ever used the name of God in vain? You know, have you ever stolen? Have you ever been angry with somebody and wanted to kill them? Have you ever looked on a person with lust? Have you ever uh, lied? And, and people will just be like, well, yeah, yeah. And, and by the end, he, he makes this statement, and every time I'm like, oh, how did he just say that? And, uh, and they weren't offended, but he'll say, so by your own admission, you're a, you're a lying, thieving, adulterous, blasphemer at heart uh, who is separated from God, and you're like... And they're still talking to him. They haven't, like, punched him and walked away. But you just he's a great example of, of what seasoned speech looks like. Uh, because even though he's confronting people in their sin, he's being so gracious and compassionate in the way that he's doing it. And that's what we are called to do. Uh, and that's difficult, right? You're like, Lord, how do I do that? How do I lovingly come alongside somebody and show them their desperate need? For Christ to see that all sinners are separated from God and our only hope at forgiveness we can't earn forgiveness from God there's no way for our good to outweigh our bad. Uh, our, our sin can only be paid for by the blood of Jesus now, and, and we need to, to begin to strive for that kind of grace uh, and humility in our speech and Paul uses this picture here that, that you are to to season your speech, With grace, you're to season it like you like you season your food with salt. You are to season your your speech with grace. Uh, And the way that salt functions, it works in a couple of different ways, right? If you put if you put salt in an open wound, what's it going to do? It's going to sting. It's going to hurt badly. Uh, but if you put salt on your food, uh, it could preserve it. It could add flavor. So even the, way that, the same way that, that salt has different functions, we need to understand how our speech is to function in given situations. Uh, and so we are to, to season our speech with salt, and then we have a, a so that statement. Right? We're we to season our speech with salt so that, or with the result that, that you may know uh, how you ought to answer each person. Now, there is a, a way that we should respond to unbelievers. Uh, and there is a way that we should uh, respond when they ask us especially questions about Jesus, uh, about Christ. And and this is the same wording, this I ought uh, phrase, or, or in the Greek it's the idea of it is necessary. Paul used it in verse 4 saying that I may make it clear which is how it is necessary for me to speak the gospel. The gospel, it's necessary for it to be spoken a certain way, and then it's necessary for us to answer each person in a specific way. And when we converse with others, it's, it's of the utmost importance that even as we are representing Christ, we have, again, we have a message of, of reconciliation, of grace, and hope, uh, and peace, and we need to communicate that accordingly. I have a message of peace, and I'm going to deliver it angrily. That's, that's not going to, to be uh, communicated openly and honestly. Turn with me over to First uh, to Peter, uh, a little bit later in, in the New Testament. First Peter chapter three. Now verse 15 is, is what we really want to focus on, but but also look at the context. So we'll, we'll begin looking in, in verse 14, and we'll read through verse 16, in First Peter three. Peter writes, to the, He's writing to people who are being persecuted having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So what Peter is saying there is always be ready to to give an account for the hope that you have. Always be ready to to share Christ with others, but do it, how? With gentleness and respect. Uh, and, And then when people attack you, what are they attacking you for? For, for your, for your good deed, for, for sharing the gospel with them. That's okay. Uh, but when, uh, when somebody who, who mentored me said, hey, there's a difference between persecution and prosecution. Uh, one you deserve and the other uh, you don't deserve. And we need to make sure that as we're, as we're carrying forth this message, we're, we may be persecuted, but we're not deservingly being prosecuted for our own conduct. Uh, and for sinning against others. We need to go with grace, with compassion, with patience. And we need to be careful about the words that we use. Because uh, in the same way that, that a hammer is an object that can be used as a tool or as a weapon, right? you can use it to build something or to, to, to hurt somebody, uh, or in the same way that a fire can provide heat uh, and energy, and today's one of those days where like, I need that fireplace on uh, in my house. Uh, a fire can also consume in a devastating fashion. Uh, and Scripture says, what about the human tongue? That it is a fire. That it is able to, uh, to be used in a multitude of ways. It can bless God and praise God, or it can be used to, to tear down men. Uh, it can uh, distinguish us from others, uh, especially as we speak with grace, uh, or it can make us worse than others in the world when we tear other people down and attack them. Uh, and we need to make sure that our speech is is seasoned with salt. Uh, and uh, did you notice that there are there are two exact numbers in that verse in Colossians? What are the two exact numbers? Always and each. Okay. Uh, always means uh, what? Always, yeah. Are there any, is there any exception clause? Hey, speak, speak graciously and kindly with this person, except if they don't do that to you. Then that, then you get, the, get, out a, get out a sin-free card uh, and you can just speak however you want. No, always means always. That we are to always speak graciously and compassionately with others. And then the, the second exact number that we see is, is each. That we need to know how to respond to each person which makes it really difficult, which requires wisdom. We always like cookie-cutter approaches, right? When, when somebody says this, I can respond in this way all the time. But that doesn't require any wisdom. It doesn't give any room for individual circumstances and cases. But what Paul is saying here is that we need to to understand each person, where they're coming from, what their objections are, what questions they're asking, uh, what what's the circumstances of the conversation, is this a good time to speak in this way, should I hold back... Uh, each individual conversation requires wisdom. Uh, and the, the emphasis here is not a, not a cookie-cutter approach, but a, but a specialized individual approach to, to speaking with others. Uh, and in our, in our growth, growth groups uh, during the week, we have been working to, to memorize how to share the gospel with others. Because as 1 Peter 3 says, if we're going to, to be ready to give an account for the hope that's in us, what do we have to know? how to give an account. We need to know the gospel so that we can share the gospel. And so we're we're memorizing uh, how to present the gospel to others and we're looking at memory verses and, and the flow of the gospel, but we need to look at that as part of our preparation, but not all of the preparation. Uh, because it's not just about reciting these these verses and these words, it's about how are we going to share with this person. And we need to begin to see that everything that you do as a Christian, is preparing you to share the gospel and minister to others. So what do I mean by that? How is everything that you do? Well, every time you come on Sunday morning and you fellowship with God's people and you hear the word proclaimed, uh, and uh, during the week when you uh, read the Bible on your own, when you go to the Lord in prayer, when you study and memorize God's word and meditate upon it, all of those things work on you As an individual, all of those things prepare you as an ambassador, as a messenger of Christ, as an evangelist to go and share the gospel with others. Uh, The gospel always goes forth as the word of God through the people of God, which means that we all are God's instrument to carry the gospel forward. And if the gospel is going to go forth to your neighbors, who's it going to go through? You. You have to internalize it and be ready to, to share. It's got to make an impact upon your life if you're going to be convinced that other people need it. Uh, and as you grow spiritually in each and every one of those ways, as you gain wisdom accordingly, uh, you will be able to be better equipped to share the gospel and minister to others. Uh, I was, uh, in, in seminary, I was told by one of my professors, he says, you are being prepared now. To minister to people you don't know yet. it's kind of amazing to think about, right? So how, how is God preparing me now? How is God preparing you now to minister to people you've never met? And God does that in so many ways right the, uh, all, all of the, the difficult experiences of your life, whether someone's been been sinning against you, whether you have experienced tragedy in your life, when you've gone through difficult circumstances and the Lord's brought you through those, uh, we see in the, the uh, I think it's Second Corinthians one of, of Paul says, now you can give hope uh, as those who have received hope. That God has given you hope, and now you can pass that along to others. Uh, and all of the experiences that you have in your life, God has brought those into your life so that you might use those for His glory and the advancement of the gospel. Everything, everything that has come to pass in your life, God is preparing you again to, to minister to people that you don't know who they are, where they are, when they, the Lord might use that, but you are being prepared. Uh, which, which brings a whole new outlook on the way that I read my Bible, the way that I memorize Scripture. Lord, I want to be a vessel, an instrument in your hands, ready to be used by you. But if I don't know the word, if I'm not pursuing Christ myself, I can't be used by him. We all have to take the heart that God is preparing us now to be an instrument in his hands for the glory of the gospel. And that's what we have seen this morning, a a call that we would live and walk wisely and faithfully uh, as we interact with with those in the world, because the world is watching. They they are looking to us. Uh, And we've seen that, that walking wisely means making the most use of our time, the best use of our time. And we've seen that it also means that we should speak graciously on every occasion, and be praying for the Lord in the individual conversations. Okay, Lord, what's, what's the best route to take? Lord, I need wisdom. What words should I speak right now? Uh, and then, just in closing, turn with me back over to, to 2 Second Corinthians. So, Second Corinthians is is a letter where Paul is is def- writing to defend himself. As an apostle, there were there were false apostles in the Corinthian church, and they were bringing all of these claims against Paul. In Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul is uh, is going to again continue his defense. And in verse one, he's going to mention that some apostles or some leaders need letters of recommendation to show that that other Christians have accepted them and say, yes, these these men are have authority, and they're they walking faithfully. Uh, so look at verse 1 in chapter 3. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Uh, so he, he mentions these letters of recommendation, but then he makes a bold claim in verses 2 and 3. He says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul's saying, I don't need a letter of recommendation because you are my letter of recommendation. The, The transformed life of the Corinthians, he says... They need to just look at you and see that, that the gospel that I proclaim is validated because of how it's transformed your life. That, that's what Paul is saying. Is and as we go out into the world each and every week, there will be few unbelievers who will have, have read about Christ in the Bible, but they will be reading you each and every day to find out who Jesus is and what he is like. They may never come and hear a sermon from a pastor, but you will preach to them with your words and with your lives. That is what you are called to do, and that's a reality. Again, as soon as you take the name of Christ, you are an ambassador, a witness for him. One pastor uh, was once asked how he accomplished so much in his church, and he said, well, I, I preach on Sundays, and 400 of my church members go and preach every day. That's how he got so much done in his church. And, and that, is, that is the heart of what we want to be here at Ambassador. Uh, we, we, we chose that name because we wanted all of us to see ourselves as ambassadors for Christ. You remember what I preached on our, our launch Sunday of 2 Corinthians 5.20? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, we we beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Uh, we see, need to see ourselves as His message bearers. Uh, and if we've been given a message, uh, does a good ambassador change the message that he's been given? Does a good ambassador refuse to proclaim the message that he's been entrusted with? No, he has to, or he has to answer to who? The king that he represents. Uh, And I pray that in our community, here in Meridian, in our neighborhoods, that we would have that same reputation, that people would see us and say, wow, how is this church reaching so many people? Because uh, Not because of me, but because each and every one of us is going forth as an ambassador, as a message bearer for Christ, that we might reach the lost in Meridian, in the Treasure Valley, and beyond. That's our goal, that's my prayer, and may we pray together to that end now. Almighty God, we come to you, acknowledging you as our creator, as our sustainer, as the one who has given us life and breath and everything. And Lord, we also acknowledge that you are now calling all people everywhere to to turn from our sins and to turn in faith to Christ, the one whom you have resurrected, the one whom you have appointed as judge and savior over all. And Lord, you have also called us to be messengers, to be ambassadors, to, to represent you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that well. Pray that you would help us to walk in wisdom towards those who do not know you that we might not be a stumbling block to them, that they might not uh, see us and see hypocrisy, but Lord, when they look at us, may they see you. May they see integrity. May they uh, see Christ. May they see the love of Christ. Lord, we long to, to represent you faithfully and boldly and graciously, compassionately proclaim the message of the gospel to the world around us. Lord, we long for, for many to be saved, for all to be saved, Lord. And, and may you give us uh, just the wisdom on how we converse and respond to each question uh, that is asked of us. And Lord, may you use us as instruments in your hands to bring glory to your name, to bring the gospel forth to the treasure valley, that every knee would bow and that Christ would be proclaimed in the hearts of all. Lord, we love you. We ask for strength, wisdom, and guidance. In Jesus' name, amen.